Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can know your own psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. In today's episode of the podcast, I will be discussing neurodiversity with two expert clinicians in the area. Neurodiversity is so topical currently, as more and more women are coming to recognise that the source of their mental health challenges have actually been undiagnosed neurodivergence. These women, now in their 30s and 40s, are becoming known as the lost girls, as typically their neurodivergence and sensitivities were missed as a consequence of their gender and how their presentation differed from boys. We still have so much to learn about how ADHD, autism and other neurosensitivities show up in women and girls and I'm proud to be bringing this episode to you for that reason. You're going to be hearing today from two people. The first is Dr. Fleur Michelle Quaffey, who is a clinical psychologist who specialises in working with people of all ages who have neurodevelopmental differences, including autism and ADHD. Fleur Michelle also works with parents, families and individuals who would like to understand aspects of neurodivergence better, including offering formal assessments for autism and ADHD for people of all ages. The second person that you'll be hearing from today is Rona McAlpine, who is an occupational therapist with experience working in infant, child and adolescent mental health services. Passionate about supporting individuals and their families with a focus on connection, co-occupations and co-regulation, she also has a particular interest in honouring neurodiversity and understanding the impact of stress, adversity and trauma. Rona has developed a four-week parents group called Reframe and Regulate to support family function. In this discussion, we talk about the intersection between neurodivergence, trauma and mental health, our own sensitivities and how noise sensitivity might be a sign that we need to incorporate self-soothing strategies into our lives. I hope you get some helpful insights from this episode. Further information on how to contact both Fleur Michelle and Rona, as well as the book recommendation I give within the episode, is listed in the show notes. Okay, so introductions all done. It's time to dive right on in.
Okay, so welcome to you both. I am so happy to have you both here in the podcast today. But before we get into some more in-depth discussion, I just wanted to quickly have a think about the three of us and where we all kind of sit within the neurodiversity discussion. And so all of us work within mental health. All of us are mummies of small people. And But I wonder if we could maybe say a little bit about our own neurodiversity status. Um, So I'm going to start very briefly by saying that this episode was born out of my growing realisation that I am really super sensitive to noise. And I guess in extreme examples of that, that's termed misophonia. And so I was doing some reading around it. Um, but though I, I don't believe that I'm neurodiverse, I do ascribe to this idea that we all have a unique neurological profile and our own particular kind of sensitivities. And so I'm just going to start there. So I'll come to you first, Fleur. What about yourself? Can you say a little bit about your neurodiversity status and how you work with neurodiversity? Yeah, sure. So um, thanks for inviting me to speak about this. It's an area that I'm very passionate about because I guess... I'm coming at it from a few different angles. Um, whenever I speak about this topic, I always kind of start with the fact that, um, you know, I'm not a stranger to neurodiversity. I've grown up around a family who I see as both neurodiverse and neurodivergent. Um, I have my own quirks um, and characteristics that I still wonder, you know, if that was assessed, would that attract some sort of description or diagnosis um and actually I'm going through the process with my daughter who's just turned four of having some of her neurodivergence um looked at in more detail and assessed and we're at the stage of sort of watching and waiting so that's a really interesting process to go through because um I actually work as a clinical psychologist and a clinical lead um in um a, a um neurodevelopmental assessment service so um, I'm coming at it from all angles really Um, and what's really great about um, the work that I do is um, lots of the individuals that are actually working in this area and doing these assessments and supporting um, individuals and families identify themselves as neurodivergent so I get um, a lot of insight from their perspective so yeah I'm coming at it from quite a few different angles. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, you're you're looking at it for your daughter, you've grown up in a family where you see that as part of what's going on for you. And I'm really interested in this. What would you say is the difference between neurodivergent and neurodiverse, I think? What, what would you say the differences are? There's a lot of conversation um, about this. And I think it's sort of born out of the label of neurotypical which I think came first I may be wrong on that um as a way of of describing things that we kind of more often see in the general population the sort of norm so to speak so I guess neurodiversity the way I understand it is um appreciating and looking at all the ways that that might be different in terms of the way somebody thinks about and experiences the world so it's trying to capture um people's different unique experiences and that can look like all sorts of different things and I guess neurodivergent is when somebody is identifying or or I guess has been described as as being different in that sense so I I look at it in quite a a broad 
way but I know um, different people have different ideas about it and yeah. I'd, I'd be interested hearing both your thoughts about yeah it. and I think Rona and I were talking just off recording a little bit about this before you came on Fleur Michelle but yeah let's um let's let's do that as we go through so thank you for that um, okay, and Rona, you will come to you next. So you work with children too. Um, what would you say is your sort of identification around neurodiversity and how do you work with it as an occupational therapist? So I think for me, it is about thinking about neurodiversity in the widest terms. So like thinking we're all neurodiverse. So it's thinking that, it, you know, I would describe that as the natural variation in brain and human composition and that we must value that within um, everybody as being different. Yeah. But I think, you know, I've done a lot of reading as a part of my development around the neurodiversity paradigm, which I think has really helped me to understand just, you know, how individuals can identify and kind of, I guess, moving away from the medical model. Mm -hmm. So just as, as Fleur Michelle was saying, that sort of um, neurodivergent, so those that identify with divergent from um, the norm in the sense of we maybe need to discuss more about what the norm is but I think like for me I think I do identify as being neurotypical but I think I have an appreciation um, for the neurodiversity paradigm and really thinking about individuals profile of of need and just uniqueness um, and appreciating that in the way that I work so I think my practice aligns um, with the neurodiversity paradigm and just that importance of recognizing everybody as an individual and just being super curious to lived experience and not providing a service based on diagnosis but based on their profile of strengths um, most importantly using their interests as like a way to really connect but then I guess essentially it is about identifying what are their individual support needs amazing thank you for that and yeah it sounds like we're all going to be fairly aligned in terms of I can see lots of nods around like not ascribing to the medicalized model of this so much and thinking about this from an individual person-centered kind of perspective which we'll come on to um, and I'm going to we're going to speak a little bit about gender and how gender plays a role in this but yeah let me just um say a little bit more about how I struggle with noise sensitivity in this because it, it did sort of um prompt me to do an episode on this and think about this a bit more and I bet there's people out there who can relate to this stuff so I am like acutely aware of how my sensitivity to noise is always present and gets worse like across the day if I don't find ways to regulate how it makes me feel and look I guess with five kids in the house it's rarely if ever quiet <laughs> And I think a massive part of this is not just the sensitivities that people present with themselves, but what the sensitivity does to our central nervous system and our emotions in particular. So I know, for example, in, in my case, that when the noise just gets a bit too much, often later in the day, maybe around dinner time, I can become quite overwhelmed and emotionally a bit dysregulated. And I might even get a bit shouty as I'm making requests to my children to like bring the noise level down, right? And I think that we can often tell ourselves that this is us having a bad day or worse, that we're a bad mum. And as opposed to wondering about this within a sensitivity lens and whether we would benefit from some strategies to cope with it. And I bet there's lots of people out there who maybe don't 
necessarily is um, identify as neurodivergent but might identify with some of this stuff so can either of you like relate to that as an example or are aware of something similar in your own experience where emotional regulation plays a key role I'll come to you Fleur um yeah we speak a lot about this in the work that I do um because my work's primarily with people um who either identify as autistic or have an ADHD or who've been given those labels um and what we know is um the way that they process sensory input so the information that comes in from our our different senses um can be different um but like you say we all have our own preferences um and kind of thresholds for how we process sensory information um and Rona if you're an occupational therapist I won't speak anymore about that because that's that's (laughs) definitely your area but there's definitely a link with I guess what we could cope with emotion regulation um in terms of you know if if we've had a day where I don't know there's been um people digging up the road outside and it's been really windy and rainy and it's you know freezing cold and I don't know there's lots of different sensory input that can almost kind of reduce our capacity to process other stuff I I think about it as sort of filling up our cup and we have less room to pour the things in um so that you know it can take a lot less for us to kind of like you say get shouty or grumpy or or whatever it is because processing sensory information kind of takes up that capacity in our our brains and if there's particular things we find difficult like you've talked about noise for other people it might be temperature touch smells um you know whatever it is then it leaves us um kind of less able to process all the other everyday stuff that we might be dealing with at any one time um, and I'll hand over to Rona at this point because probably <laughs> an expert on this yeah so I think for me it, the key is self-awareness like for absolutely every, everybody and that like appreciation of neurodiversity in the sense of just difference but I think we all have different preferences and we all have different thresholds and when I work with people to um, explore their sensory preferences and their sensory needs often I think about it in the everyday but then we also have to think about we also have to think about what happens when our nervous system kicks in so like when we're in a heightened state or when we have a sort of fight flight freeze response like the natural um, impact of that on our senses is that they become heightened because ultimately they're there to to keep us safe and that is our surveillance system for um our safety so senses I think are playing in 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 lots of different ways and interacting but we have to consider an individual sensory needs we have to recognize the experiences that often lead to overwhelm but we also need to identify ways and means to self-soothe so that's a a term that I use a lot because sometimes we can feed our nervous system calming experiences which helps Um, to tolerate some of the sensory experiences which are potentially overwhelming so and I think this is when we're supporting sort of sensory and emotional regulation 
so there's a little bit about thinking about it in the moment so or trying to understand the way that maybe we're reacting to sensory sensitivities but there's also thinking what is within our control that we can potentially do proactively to soothe our nervous system and to build in capacity for managing some of those experiences that are sometimes we can anticipate and sometimes we can't um, and I think it's just understanding that and and through doing so having a greater self-awareness yeah I love I love that you started that with self-awareness Rona you know I'm always speaking about that on the podcast and, and the work that I do with my clients but um, this idea about anticipating it if you can I think is really important and you know I've been really aware of if I'm feeling like that by by dinner time and, and and feeling really sort of sensory you know overstimulated what are the kids feeling and I've really started thinking about how can we build in not just like quiet soothing sensory experiences for myself but also for the kids and just building in like quiet time here and there in their own spaces um so that's really useful to to kind of hear about okay now one of the one of the ways I think about trauma with people um is that trauma exists on a spectrum and you know Sometimes people don't necessarily agree with this idea, but my, my broad take on it is that we often tell people that trauma is just the extreme end of things, you know, neglect, sexual abuse, those kind of things. And I know that in my clinical practice, there are many, many people who've not had those extreme experiences who still identify as having traumatic experiences growing up in their families. And I really like this idea that we're now thinking about neurodiversity as as on a spectrum. And I'm not talking about the autistic spectrum here, but that everybody sort of sits somewhere along that. Um, and I wonder if the black and white of diagnosis in the past has contributed to some of what we see in terms of women and girls having been missed a little. And I just wondered, Fleur, you're nodding at that. Like, tell me a little bit about your take on that. Absolutely. And I guess I've got experience of this um, yeah. with my own daughter as well. Um, so, yeah, with diagnostic criteria, um, they are very black and white. Um, it's you sort of looking for the presence or an absence of something, but that that's all objective, isn't it? And, and what you use as evidence for that, it, you're basing it on, um, you know, things that you see that other people report. It, it's things that I guess are all based on interpretation um so yeah it it is really tricky and I think a lot of the kind of assessment tools that we use were developed you know sort of 20 30 years ago when we understood autism um in particular to, to be something that mainly affected boys and 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 so we've kind of proceeded with this view of of it being certain types of, of behaviours, but actually that can look different for different people depending on their gender, um, the culture that they've grown up in, um, because that's another issue as well, um, as, as well as gender. Um, things look different um, depending on, on what different influences people are being exposed to. Um, so culturally, that can look very different um, in terms of somebody's play or, um, you know, the things that they're interested in socially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, we're, we're thinking about this specifically with women and girls, but I have had people who already know I'm doing a, a podcast on this, men who've been in touch to say that at like a later stage in their life, they're going through a diagnostic process as well. So people do get missed even if they're men or boys, you know, but it seems to Absolutely. be... 
that that there is a, a, a lot of women out there who have been missed along the way somehow. Rona, what's your take on this? Oh, I always think about that sort of the concept of masking because I think like it is like being true to your authentic self, you know, like and how people articulate their lived experience. Because if you you really only know how you process the you know from a sensory point of view you only know your own sensory preferences and it's very difficult to imagine what it might be like for someone else and I think sometimes it's you know I kind of see a bit of my role in helping people to identify with self-awareness but then also being able to articulate that because I think sometimes it's being able to identify how you experience something and how that might differ from somebody else and how you communicate that if communication is something that can be challenging so I think there's so many different elements to it but for me it's really validating the individual's lived experience and hearing it from their perspective so and and I think there is you know this concept of masking or the concept of even children particularly girls I think like you know holding it together or complying with what the social norm is but then that taking its toll which often I would see as people presenting with anxiety or low mood whereas that's secondary so it's almost like helping people to have really good self-awareness and then being able to articulate what their needs are and then helping them to get their needs met whereas that's a really complex process and if it's not if we don't attune to that as those that are supporting and enabling then I think there's the secondary impact is that they end up highly anxious um, or potentially quite low in moods um, and just overwhelmed by their environment, the task, the social interaction, which then I think comes back to when you were mentioning about trauma. You know, more recently, I've done quite a lot of reading around sensory trauma, compliance trauma, social trauma. And these are all less of the sort of beyond the traditional sense of trauma but actually when we think about what's happening within the nervous system it is overwhelmed and it is prolonged so I think it's about for me it's back to self-awareness of and also how we support people to communicate their lived experience and we want to validate that and then we want to help them to articulate that to other people and give them tools or support them to learn ways of managing that yeah no absolutely and actually that that segues beautifully into trauma which was my next question and there's a lot out there in social media at the moment around high sensitivity so we're hearing lots and lots about that I think and it's very much been aligned with that sort of past childhood trauma and I understand that. I do understand that. And it may be true for some, um, but I'm also, there's a, I'm really conscious of parents with neurodiverse children getting the wrong message and feeling blamed somehow. Um, We see a lot of that in in my work, you know, there's a, there's a high proportion of um, children who have had experienced various adverse childhood experiences and who come through with very complex backgrounds and they're being referred for an autism assessment when perhaps that's not always the right thing and of course you can see both but there's such an overlap between what can look like neurodivergence um, and what we see in trauma um, in terms of the things that we've already talked about and I think 
it, it is really important to, to look at somebody's experience as a whole and the things that have happened to them to really understand how they've got to the point they're at and, and not, I guess, jump to conclusions yeah. about what what's going on for them and, and to really look at their story and, and look at what's meaningful. But there is a lot of blame attached to that if, if somebody has had really challenging experiences. Um, so we've really got to think about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And but all I mean, with that said, though, I do think it's, as you say, it is important to consider where trauma fits in that. And it's, you know, trying to tease things apart and work out, you know, what's presenting. Um, And back to your point, Rona, like, I do wonder um, if part of the trauma for women and girls has been the fact that the diagnosis has been missed and I think you said people they've swallowed their experience or not sharing their experience and you know I would talk about they're internalizing all of that and then they're told you know well you're actually anxious or you have bipolar or depression or whatever it happens to be and maybe that's developed as a result of actually the fact that they've not able to live a life where they're understood properly where they're able to articulate the struggles that they have right I used to see that a lot in the inpatient settings that I worked in where neurodivergence was only picked up at the point where people had reached crisis and were admitted to an inpatient mental health service, which is really awful and kind of compounds that experience if if you don't feel like you quite fit or you don't fully understand yourself. It's like what Rona was talking about. Um, And we particularly saw that um, for people who presented with eating disorders and, and we know there's a kind of higher prevalence of people who are neurodivergent who who end up having difficulties in that area um, and also for people who end up being described as, as having sort of personality issues and, and I really hate that term but people who've generally experienced trauma um, and what we also know um, I was just reading a review paper on this a couple of weeks ago is that people who are neurodivergent are more likely to experience trauma and it's difficult to know which comes first absolutely but it, it, it's quite a complex relationship and we've really got to carefully consider both yeah no absolutely Fleur Michelle and um, it's interesting that you bring up eating disorders and I had personality disorder written down on my dot points to cover because actually that services that I've worked in in the past where inpatient services where people have attracted this diagnosis of personality disorder which has helpfully now been thought about as complex trauma and as you see it's the chicken and the egg isn't it is working out what has come first um, in terms of someone's lived experience um, Rona, what's your sense of this? So I am always really interested in what the individual's own narrative is about their needs. And I think that plays in a lot and influences the mental health component of it. So I think like when I think with people, I'm I'm always really interested in what their story to themselves is about their needs. And and sometimes and the language makes a huge difference. So like does the problem being a word that you know again we could think about a lot about but does it sit within the individual or is it more about how the individual functions within the environment and in the task and with different people so I think again it is that the complex interplay between the neurodivergence 
and mental health and chicken and egg. But I think, yeah, I am always very interested back to self-awareness, but in what the individual's own narrative is. So even if we think about children, so if a child is is struggling um, and it's to attend school and the presenting need is school refusal like how do we understand that is that that the school are unable to meet the needs of the young person or is that the young person's needs are you know the problem kind of sits within the child and it's the child that needs help it's the child that needs therapy it's the child that needs whereas actually there's a lot we can do to support function by thinking more about the individual profile of need of the young person and then how we can adapt the environment, the social expectations, the sensory experiences. And by doing that, we enable the function of the person. But the mental health component, then I guess it depends what how they understand that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, I love that, that you're bringing up the environment. And one of the things when I was prepping up for the podcast that I came across, and I hadn't come across this before, was this idea of um, sensitive temperament being described as either orchid. I don't know if you've heard of this before. So like orchid's temperament being that an orchid needs a particular environment to thrive versus a dandelion um, temperament, which grows almost anywhere. And then somewhere in the middle, you've got like a tulip where they can sort of fall somewhere in between those two extremes. And I guess... That was that was part of what I wanted to talk about today was how important is our environment when women in particular are, are neurodiverse and have particular sensitivities. Um, what's your sense of that, Fleur Michelle? I think it's really important and I think it's one of the reasons we miss women and girls um, or people who actually are pretty good at being compliant and adapting to the environment, um, you know, following expectations, um, having enough kind of insight to know what's expected of them. That's a common reason why, um, you know, many women aren't diagnosed until adulthood because they can kind of do enough of the things they need to to blend in and, and kind of get by. But like Rona says, the impact of that on their mental health, on, you know, when they get home at the end of the day and, and all the effort and exhaustion from that can be really really significant and we see that in children and young people as well um it's really really common that difficulties are evident at home but you ask for information from a young person's school and and they say oh no they're, they're doing great academically they they always follow instructions um so it 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 really just shows how that can go under the radar um and, and I see that in my own daughter who's who's four. And I think we see this in women and girls that they are even women and girls who are on the autism spectrum or who are neurodivergent. We know from research that they kind of have stronger language skills, um, a, a kind of natural strength with, with social situations that but that can look like somebody who's coping when it it might not be. Um, so yeah I think we definitely see that and that is part of the reason why we do miss a lot of people and I guess it's not just women and girls but anybody who's working really hard and, and has enough initiative and capacity to kind of look like they're, they're doing okay and, and work out what they need to do it is kind of like they, they shoot themselves in the foot because then the difficulties aren't as evident 
Yeah, so there's a sense that these are people who are not expressing the problem behaviourally. Um, it's all flying, sort of... Um, holding it together. Under the radar, holding things together, and they have enough um, sort of understanding of the etiquette around certain things to just do what they need to do. It doesn't mean it's not difficult and exhausting and hard work yeah. and taking its toll. Yeah. Um, and I guess if, if we think about the, adding in the sensory aspects of the environment that also may be mismatched, that may be challenging, it, it adds up to a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm so interested if you would be happy to talk about it, Fleur Michelle, is like, what, what was your experience growing up um, within a family who you said at the beginning, you notice sort of neurodivergence within it and you yourself identify that way? Um, I think I, I grew up in a family that placed a lot of importance on academic achievement and yeah. kind of realised that if if you worked hard, you got good grades, good school reports, that that was a way to kind of get by and, and succeed. Yeah. But in, in my family, certainly, it, I see perfectionism traits and, and that can make things really really difficult because I guess if, if we're thinking back to how an individual experiences things if you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself and you feel that you have to get things exactly right it can make simple tasks like homework really really challenging and, and exhausting Um, I think the other thing that I, I could see in my family is that sometimes people thought certain members of the family were, were being kind of rude or ignorant but it, it was it was just their social style I guess and, and I guess if we think back to feeling overwhelmed in social situations somebody might give a very brief answer or, or sort of cut off um, and I certainly, certainly saw people who did that and, and people ascribed that to being rude whereas we know a lot more now um about how that there could be all sorts of reasons for that that person mm. you know might have been really struggling with that situation and just wanted to get away or they might not realize that they're, they're coming across in the way that they are so um yeah I've grown up in a family of very high achieving perfectionists which you know people who've achieved amazing things but that's also come at a cost as well in terms of people's mental health from from what I've experienced yeah of course and it just you know it sounds as you describe that just the effort that it's taking for people to just live their lives on a day-to-day basis has such a takes such a toll yeah, yeah. Um, sorry on you go Rona no just it's just thinking about communication because I think it is a big part of understanding all of this and I think when we think about supporting understanding and communication I often think to myself like verbal communication shouldn't be the default for all like so just because people are comfortable with language and like to talk it isn't necessarily the way that they learn best and over the last I guess 10 years now but more in the last five years there's just so many different ways of communicating so even Laura you like a voice note um, and you know like <laughs> some people like a whatsapp chat and and some people just like the old style of phone unexpectedly for a chat on their way home from work and um, you know like twitter and reels are really visual like they show you what people are doing and I think like you know the world has there is a much greater variety of how people communicate and understand, but I think it also shows that we're all different. 
So yeah. some people do like send photographs of things and that works for them and other people send voice notes. And yeah, so I just thought I'd share that as an example of just the diversity of the way that we can communicate. But what works for one won't necessarily work for the other. And I think like it's when we think about it from so from because I work with children, young people predominantly, it's about how we would communicate school or social relationships and and interact whereas I guess with the adults it's like how's information presented how do we let people know how we feel how do we let people know what to ex what we're expecting but I think so much of this is around rooted around understanding and communication yeah I love that I love that you brought up my <laughs> my tendency towards a voice note I do love them <laughs> Um, and actually, I wanted to come to you next, Shona, um, and ask a little bit about what would you say some of the potential strategies people might use to cope with neurosensitivities better? Like, what would be some off the top of your head? Okay, so I have sort of five main ones. Now, I'm not going to go into them all in lots of depth, but I guess like, so one would be about support and understanding and communication. So we can think about asking people how they, what is their preferred method of communication? Are they somebody who likes things written down? Are they somebody who likes things in lists? Like, do they like videos? Do they like photos? Do they like conversation? You know, how do people prefer to communicate? What works for them? I guess the second thing is that sort of just sense of supporting their sense of self and belonging. So we want to be really interested and curious about their strengths and we want to play to them and we want to be, we want to use their interests as something that helps them to identify with who they are um, and just thinking about the language that we use around their needs. And and we've spoken about this a lot throughout this podcast, but helping people to share their perspective and to share their lived experience is something we can all do. We can be much more, you know, curios curiosity is the key. We can be much more interested in what it's like for that person. So make less assumptions and be more curious um, and, and hear what's said. Yeah. and think about it from different perspectives and value them equally so I think sometimes especially with children as well it's like giving them jobs that they want to do you know like letting them follow their interests if they don't want to be in all the clubs that are, that are expected of them then it's okay for them to have a special interest in um, astronomy you know, like, or to be thinking about, you know, it's letting them follow their interest and develop their interests. It's a real way to support connection. Um, and I think we could talk and we have done about support and sensory and emotional regulation. So sometimes it's just simple strategies like having a sensory toolkit for instance or thinking about you know should you be carrying a hand warmer in your pocket so that then when you feel yourself getting overwhelmed you can focus on the heat of the hand warmer if that's something that's cooling for you or can you carry extra strong mints so that then if this the auditory environment is overwhelming you can put a strong taste into your mouth and focus on the taste experience to sort of almost balance out some of the distress mm -hmm. or is it about giving yourself permission to leave environments that mm -hmm. are overwhelming for you so I think there is a lot that we could talk about around sensory and emotional regulation work and yeah. then finally I think the last thing that I spend a lot of time doing especially with parents is thinking about strategies to support executive function yeah. So if we can organise space, 
if we can think about how we present things tasks to people if we can think about you know are there apps that people can be using to help organization and and use of reminders you know so it's almost like taking the pressure off the areas of life that we can yeah yeah and actually it's so interesting um just that last point you're talking about there it's almost like systems and automation in the same way as a self-employed person you would put into your business but you're thinking about that for for your life and how you can automate things and have reminders and the last thing that you said um Ronan connection like that is so fascinating for me within this sort of sphere because I think for a long time there was this idea that people with autism or neurodivergence were somehow they didn't want to connect with other people and actually I just do not prescribe to that idea at all I think it's people are desperate to connect with others but they just have a different way of doing it and can't do it in a way that's socially acceptable or or whatever and yeah I just that idea of connection feels very important here right very very like it's the yeah everybody wishes to connect but we connect in our own way yeah absolutely and Fleur Michelle you were going to say something I was just going to say when I because I also work with adults um who are neurodivergent as well and it, it seems to be one of the most powerful things when when somebody um you know receives a diagnosis or or identifies as autistic or have an ADHD that then they can not just understand themselves but connect with other people who think like them who understand their experiences who might have similar interests and and similar ways of of doing things um it's so empowering for people to realize that actually I thought this was just me but there's other people who think like me and I guess it goes back to the whole point of of neurodivergence being that you're a minority generally in a world that's set up a certain way and I've been thinking throughout all of these discussions that um, problems occur when there's a mismatch between you know what's expected and how the environment's set up and how that works for that individual um because the environment and the world and other people are generally set up in a neurotypical way so it only becomes a problem when you're not neurotypical if the world was set up a different way and environments were set up a different way would, would it be neurotypical people then that would struggle and be in the minority yeah. it's that mismatch that causes the problem so being able to connect with other people who are on your wavelength is so so validating and important for people yeah Absolutely. Thank you for that. Okay, I have one last question um, and I'm going to direct that to you, Flora, Michelle. If someone is listening to the podcast today and they're genuinely sat there wondering whether they might have ADHD or another sort of um, neurodivergence, how might they go about exploring that for themselves? I'd say do some research, read about it. Um, There's hashtags on Twitter and Instagram and other social media um, in terms of there's one actually autistic. I think what Rona said about being able to um, look at people's experiences who do identify as, as neurodivergent is really, really powerful because that will give a sense of, oh, does that sound like me? Does that feel like the kinds of things that I do um, as, as a sort of first step? also speak to people um that know you and say you know have you ever wondered you know whether you know 
I, I might have these sorts of tendencies or have you had any thoughts about these things that I've noticed I do? Um, if somebody's looking to, to seek um, further assessment or, or a diagnosis, there are kind of routes through um, your GP to do that, but the, the, you know, that can often take a long time. Um, there's, there's other people kind of available who offer those sorts of assessments. Um, but I'd, I'd say as a first step to to kind of look into it and read about the accounts of, of other people who, you know, identify as having similar um, similar patterns of behaviour or similar similar issues. Um, and also, yeah, speak to people that you know and, and ask them their opinion. Because um, it's quite common when I'm working with adults for somebody to ask a partner or a friend or a family member and then for them to turn around and say, yeah, I've always noticed that that you do that and um so yeah speaking to people that know you well can be really really important yeah yeah and obviously that forms part of what an, a full assessment would include wouldn't it you know the people that are around you and who observe you most um, and actually you've spoken about reading there one of the um things that I read in preparation for the podcast was a book called Divergent Mind written by Janara Nirenberg and it's a fantastic um sort of overview of the area if anyone's interested to read more um Rona is there anything else you would say about that in terms of people seeking support if they think that they might be struggling with one of these issues just be curious, be curious and follow all um, the avenues that you can. And, and I think with regards to autism, people often talk quite a lot about finding a difficulty in theory of mind. So understanding the mind of others, whereas I always come back to thinking that the focus needs to be on theory of own mind. So we want to try to, which leads nicely into know your own psychology, but it's like we want to get to know ourselves better and being curious to that and, and following yeah just what you're comfortable with as well and just go with it but I think we're all on a journey of self-discovery and I think just follow yeah follow your curiosity amazing and actually I love that you've segued into know your own psychology because one of the things that I'm trying to help people to do is formulate their own psychological story and what I'm keen to say to people is it's not just about the psychological it's about the biological and the social and the psychological and it being that very sort of transdiagnostic approach that you're taking to things um, okay, listen, thank you so much to both of you for guesting on the podcast today. It's been an absolute delight and I know there's going to be huge value in what we've talked about for listeners. So thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Know Your Own Psychology. If you loved it, please share it on Facebook or Instagram for your friends and family. And if you really want to help me out, drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can email me, hello at drlaurawilliams.com. And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook. Search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.